Welcome fans of New Mexico in Focus. Kevin McDonald here, executive producer for the show. And we are so thankful that you joined us here for the podcast version of this show, which is the show for Friday, December 13th, 2019. Can't believe this year is almost over. Hope it's been a great one for you. I know it has been for us here at the show, and we always appreciate your support. We have a great show this week. I know I say that every time, but some super stuff in this show, starting with our land. It's the second Friday of the month, which means we're going to do some environmental reporting with the very talented Laura Paskus. And this is a really unique piece you're just not going to find anywhere else. She and our crew headed down to the Mexico border in Donna Ana County, and they looked at the impact of the wall on wildlife in the area. The Chihuahuan Desert, of course, uh, starts in Mexico, comes up into New Mexico, and it is a wildlife habitat. And so politics aside, whatever your feelings about the wall, there's no doubt that that barrier is affecting wildlife. So we take a look at that this month. We hope you enjoy that. Also, Steve Terrell, it's a name that's probably familiar to a lot of you. He is part of the Capitol Corps press team in Santa Fe, or was, I should say. He is recently retired within the last few weeks. But he sat down with us to talk a little bit about his career, to talk about how politics and the legislature has changed since he started covering them almost two decades ago, and some predictions about what he thinks will happen with the legislature moving forward, including whether or not he thinks we'll get to a point where those are paid professional positions as opposed to citizen legislature. We're one of the last I believe we are the last citizen legislature in the country. So a really great conversation with him and some really great emotional, uh, deep, contextual conversations on the line this week about some tough topics. First one is a gun law that went into effect in July, passed by lawmakers last session, that would allow judges to order guns taken away from accused domestic violence offenders. But it's got a problem. It's got a loophole that a KRQE TV report pointed out. And so we dive into that, talk about if there's a way to close that loophole, whether or not the law is just fundamentally flawed. Really important conversation we hope you will listen to. Also, they talk about the uh, President Trump and his move for stricter mandates governing SNAP, which is Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, food stamps in other words. Uh, They want to really uh, crack down on the use of that, especially for single adults, Uh, They want to move them back into the workforce, and there's a lot of people that feel like it's going to hurt, especially New Mexico, very hard, and so we have a really great conversation about that as well with the line panelists. And then last, we talk about nuisance properties. This is something that's come up in Albuquerque, where the city has given a pair of convenience stores 10-day notices that they are nuisance properties and they need to make improvements for public safety in and around their businesses, which leads to a fascinating conversation about what the responsibility and the liability is for businesses, especially in those high crime areas. So really looking forward to the show. We hope you are as well. We love your feedback. So please reach out to us, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, any of those places. You can always call the station or email us at newmexicoandfocus at nmpbs.org. We love to hear from you. Let us know what you think about any of these topics. Give us topics for other shows. Any and all is great and welcome. We really appreciate your time and hope you enjoy the podcast and we'll see you next week. Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and the Nieper Natural History Programming Fund for KNME-TV. And viewers like you. This week on New Mexico in Focus, our land heads to the border to examine the impact of the wall. When you fragment habitat, you divide populations of wild animals into smaller populations. And the smaller the population of wild animals, the more likely it is to disappear. Plus, we debrief with the former dean of the Capitol Press Corps, Steve Terrell, as he heads into retirement. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. Our monthly environmental series, Our Land, takes us to the border to see firsthand construction of the new wall between the U.S. and Mexico and its impact on the environment of both people and animals. Perhaps we can call it a red flag reality. 
The red flag law passed recently allows judges to order people accused of domestic violence or subject to a restraining order to temporarily turn in their guns, but it apparently has a loophole. We'll tell you what's up. Those new stricter mandates for SNAP recipients by the Trump administration could cut food aid to as many as 37,000 to Mexicans. The line panel will debate not just the mandate, but how rural New Mexicans might fare. The city has given two so-called nuisance properties in the city 10 days to make changes or face consequences. Lots of angles here, especially the idea of how much responsibility for public safety is a business to assume versus the city. Here's the line. On July 1st, a state law went into effect that allows a judge to order someone to temporarily give up any guns they own under two conditions. One, if they've been accused of domestic violence or have a restraining order, that's called an order of protection and, and, and that's against them. And two, if the alleged victim can prove their life is in danger. Democrats really love, like this bill, but it seems clear it's not working as intended. Our Line Opinion panel is gathered at the table to talk about this topic and other news of the week. We've got Line regular Serge Martinez, <clears throat> a professor at the UNM School of Law. State Representative Janice Arnold-Jones is here, a welcome and familiar face at the table. Former New Mexico House Minority Whip and another line regular Daniel Foley's here. He's always welcome, too. And we round off with former state senator Eric Riego. Eric, thanks for being here, too. Now, welcome to you all. This seems at least in spirit to be a red flag law, sort of in finger quotes here. There is a difference we'll talk about in a second. Um, is there a legislative fix to this, uh, Serge? I'm going to start with you. Is there a legislative fix to this, or is there a fundamental uh, a flaw here when it comes to, we're going to talk about, warrants and getting guns in homes and things. Is there a fundamental flaw here that we just didn't address in the legislature? Uh, I mean, it certainly wasn't addressed, right? This idea that mm -hmm. we'll, if, if a court orders you to surrender your firearms, that we'll just assume that's gonna happen and there'll be no follow-up and there's right. no, no. <coughs> it's a voluntary. Sorry, no repercussions for not doing it. There's right. no sort of oversight rate. Other places have addressed this in much stronger ways. And mm -hmm. like, look, we're gonna send a police officer to your place to to try to recover those guns, mm -hmm. and if you don't give them, then we can, the court can in certain cer certain circumstances mm -hmm. issue a warrant, order searches, and whatnot, right? Take mm -hmm. it seriously when we've decided that someone is a threat mm -hmm. and we have reason to believe that they have a firearm, that we're gonna actually take it seriously. Right, Daniel, the idea that uh, we'll talk about the, this will come up in the next session in 2020, there was a bill that did not pass that addresses exact, exactly what uh, Serge just mentioned. <coughs> but the idea that this voluntary thing to turn in your weapons, is that a fundamental flaw or is that actually the appropriate way to go? Should we, is that the actual, the best way to do this? Yeah, so, so mm -hmm. I think there's, there's a couple of issues, right? The first mm -hmm. issue being uh, in your introduction to legislation when it says those accused of domestic violence. Right. Um, you know, you're gonna have a lot of people that have a hard time saying you have to surrender your weapon, you have to give up a Second Amendment right because someone's accused you of something. Mm -hmm. um, you know, clearly we have a problem, not only in the state, but in this country. I mean, we've got to figure out what we're gonna do about this. Right. Um, because let me, let me kind of let me kind of work that timetable out. Yes, there's an accusation, but we do have jurisprudence in this situation, meaning a judge has to make this order. This isn't That's just right. a you but, know. But that doesn't mean the person is convicted of domestic violence yet. Okay. So I can make okay. an accusation that that Janice is committing domestic violence against me. I go to court. Th at that point, before anything happens, they they are going to ask Janice if she has a gun. They can take the gun from her. There's no order of protection that could have been issued yet. Okay. It's purely an accusation of domestic violence. And I think that that we've got to figure out a way to cover the gap. We can't let all the accusations fall mm -hmm. because we do know that from the accusation to the committing of the crime, there's an unbelievable amount of evidence that says, listen, sometimes these people, you know, you, you, the accusation is real even though the courts don't catch on to it. So we gotta come up with some process. Right? We gotta come up with some process to vet these to make sure this should be done. Because you have examples, right? I mean, clearly the law doesn't have the teeth when all the judge can say is, you know, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, do you have a weapon? And the answer is no, and we're done. Um, you know, as the example in Santa Fe, where the individual said, no, he didn't have a gun, then he said he sold it, mm -hmm. then he turned in five firearms right. a few days later to the police department. Not only did he do all of that, from reading the article, there was no ramifications for that. Like he wasn't held in contempt of court. He didn't right. wasn't considered. So why would anybody now say yes? I mean, I if someone's got this weapon, but it also doesn't address the fundamental issue mm -hmm. of how do you stop this, right? Because right. even if you take that individual's weapon, they're going to find a weapon. They're going to do something else. So I think that before we start worrying about taking guns from people who are accused of domestic violence, we got to figure out a way to hold those that are that are actually convicted of domestic violence accountable for their actions. And we've seen repeatedly in the state that our 
our jails are just a revolving door of individuals that get in and get out. Janice, you know, interestingly, as I hear Dan say this, we have 7,000 protective orders that were filed in 2017 across the state. You know, we have a system. We have to, our judges are hired, literally, to make these decisions. They look at the information. They say, yes, I agree. <laughs> a protective order must be issued here. Good enough? Why is that not just good enough? And, and folks have, you know, 48 hours to turn in their weapons. Well, let me say, but you the 7,000 protective orders uh, were before the confiscation, the civil asset forfeiture of a weapon. Mm -hmm. But when you look at those cases, that 7,000 cases, you know, what they are looking at is saying, you know, you've got a problem here and stay away. Mm -hmm. So let me speak for women. Mm -hmm. So they are not nearly as afraid of a gun as they are of fists or of a guy strangling them, which is the number one issue that happens in most domestic violence cases. And I don't want you to think that it's just women that, that do this, followed by a knife. And we haven't talked about any of that as we're talking about this process that has absolutely no teeth. Uh, and, and so, and, and we haven't looked at the other side of this, so. Um, I'm hearing two different things from you guys. Is it that it has no teeth, or is it the thing just flawed completely, it's, and why are we bothering to come get guns? It, that's what I'm hearing you guys saying. That's not what that, I said. You no. know, uh, uh, underneath, so, that's what I'm no, hearing. Am I, am I mean, I, if you want you to know. say that, Gene, and say that that's what we're saying, I think you're wrong. Okay. Um, I think we're saying that there's, there's, a, there's a problem with, for, for instance, and I'll defer to Serge because he's the attorney, to get a protective order doesn't mean someone's guilty of right. something. I can go in and say that I need a protective order against Gene and get it granted. That doesn't mean that... That's understood. It, so, yeah, right. but, but Gene, if that's understood, why are you wanting to confiscate something that belongs to someone's personal property based on something that's not a conviction of something being done wrong? I'm going to let Eric Riego answer that question. Well, I just, I, I mean, like the sanctity of me owning a weapon, I just, I'm always shocked because when it comes to uh, folks who are mo much more conservative and law and order based, it's always like, you know, uh, when, I mean, domestic violence, we're talking about a reasonable judge doing the right thing to, to try to protect a person who's in a very potentially violent, potentially life-threatening situation. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to me that pro-gun folks, like, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter uh, uh, unless you're just assuming every judge is, judge is incompetent, that a judge would say, you know, you're in a dangerous situation. There's a fire harm. Right. There's a fire harm in, in home. And I'm, I'm, I think the real problem here is that it's not tough enough, and that frankly, it's falling down on enforcement because we've we've set up this false dichotomy in this country, where um, if you are in any way held to a higher standard for having a, an instrument of lethal force mm -hmm. um, that is often used in domestic violence crimes, and I'm, I'm surprised that anybody who's been anywhere near domestic violence would support. Uh, the Second Amendment over potentially the leading cause, and it's actually not strangulation, it is a firearms. That's the leading cause of death in these domestic violence situations. Mm -hmm. If there's a gun involved, the odds of it ending up in a lethal situation uh, increase dramatically. So we so cling to this um, false sacred right that we have a right, no matter how violent the household is, no matter how bad the situation is, no matter what the legal pa pattern is, mm -hmm. that we're gonna hold that right above the possibility of saving a life. Um, not just, by the way, if you listen to this, I don't know if you follow the story of this sheriff in Houston who said, look, they just, they just, he just lost one of his officers in a domestic violence situation because this domestic violence offender, the male in this case, had a gun, right. his officer reported to a domestic violence situation, shot the cop, killed the cop, and he's saying, like, at what point yep. do we stand up to the NRA and other gun rights folks and say, like, at what point do we really say, like, um, we're not taking away your gun rights, but if you're in a situation of any, you have a protective order, mm -hmm. you've potentially committed a crime, we have to get involved for the safety of our community and of mm -hmm. law enforcement, frankly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Go back to Serge on this. Um, a reminder, until this was debated on the Senate floor, there was a provision about what we were talking about originally, starting this conversation about being able to get a search warrant mm -hmm. from a judge mm -hmm. to go into a home and get a gun, and that was lost in the compromise on the mm -hmm. Senate debate mm -hmm. on the floor. Are things head I'm, I'm reading that folks who support this feel like we're heading towards that eventuality, mm -hmm. that they feel like that's where they want to go, and that's the only thing that will make this thing have teeth. At this point, are you seeing that in this next coming legislative session? Is that uh, it certainly seems the like numbers that we have now? The you know? natural evolution mm -hmm. of this is say, hey, we really want this. Oh, it has no teeth. Let's right. give it some teeth and say right. that in a situation where we think someone is in danger or there's a chance that violence could erupt, that mm -hmm. we actually have to be able to do something and not just say, mm -hmm. now 
you know, don't use your gun. Right. Uh, and so I think that the places that have gotten gotten there before us have seen this and have implemented these sorts of, mm -hmm. you know, procedures to to give some teeth. To and Janice, I was referring to the Extreme Risk Protection Order Act, and that's the one that died, and it's probably going right. to come back up. But, but so, so, the, and, and there are lots of questions here. Mm -hmm. So where Dan and I are is somebody who just says, I think you're at risk, I think I'm going to get hurt. That alone is not sufficient to take somebody else's rights away. And the due process piece, we've just not finished it. It has so many holes, including the piece that when there has been a mistake, and there are a lot of false claims, and you got to, you know, there's mm -hmm. an awful lot of honor stuff here, mm -hmm. um, that it is on the victim <clears throat> of the false claim to pay for all those fees. Which is, uh, you know, so we really have a lot of work to do mm -hmm. to make this work. But in good police work, when there is a real threat, they go and get a warrant and they present it and a judge acts on it, even before somebody is convicted. That's called building a case. And I, I don't know. Does that happen often in domestic violence cases, though? What you're saying is it's almost like detective work and they get in there like a real case. Yeah. Isn't that why we have these judges? They, no, they that's, why these, that's why you have cops. That's why you have cops. But, no, but the judges. cops don't issue the order. The judge no, the cops the build the case you know? to right. help the, the DA get the order. This yeah. isn't, Gene, we don't have a system. You, you may be surprised. We don't have a system that the door opens up and you just walk in front of a judge and say, I don't like Eric Griego. Let's, let's talk about the system we have, Dan. Not the yeah. No, no, this system. is the system you the, think. The system we have, a judge has the right. Right. No, the system job. we have, you have to present someone evidence is, before someone's feeling endangered <coughs> no, that, in that, their relationship. Where else do they get? They go to the police. They've already they gone get, to the they police. They get the protective order. They've That's already true. gone to the police and assuming they've now in front and of the judge. they get the protective order. Right. right. We're fine with that. You're saying now we should take it a step further that says we should now take someone else's rights away because someone else feels threatened by that. And and, and I'm not saying that there's not reason. That's what we voted on in the legislature last year. It's not me. I mean, this no, is what right. we voted on. That's you what know? the legislators voted on. We right. don't have, you know, we don't have I mean, a democracy. You know. We've got a republic. Right. They <laughs> voted on it <laughs> and they got watered down because the only way you can get people to vote on things is you have to have some compromise. That's true. And so you you wind up with this this you wind up with this piece of legislation now. That I, I got to wrap this up. Are you guys saying this shouldn't be on be on the books at all? Is that what you guys are saying? The judges shouldn't have this right to do this at all? No, but the process leading up to the judge is flawed, and we don't okay. have enough resources. There, there, need, there needs right. to be a process, Gene. It's funny how we want to give the judges all this authority Ten seconds on here, mm -hmm. but you know we have all these problems. You look at things like mandatory sentencing. You look at all these things that we've given yeah. judges that we've tied the judges' hands, and here we're giving judges some discretion, but we've turned around and said there's no teeth in it. What I'm telling you is that if you're going to put more teeth in it, you have to make sure that you're doing the right thing at the front end. You cannot infringe someone else's rights Mm -hmm. because someone else feels that they're being threatened. Out of time on that one. We'll be back with this group in a few minutes. After the break, we head to the border for this month's episode of Our Land. As far as the legislature goes, uh, while it may be seen to outsiders, may seem too palsy-walsy, but at least it's not like Congress and just at each other's throats every minute. Uh, people, Democrats and Republicans, actually get together at times and... Uh, and while they'll disagree on the major divisive issues of the day, uh, they, they can work together to come up with uh, compromises a lot and, uh, and some good stuff's come out of it. The wall being built between the U.S. and Mexico is frequently in the national news. The Trump administration recently granted another contract, this one worth $400 million, to install 30-foot-tall steel bollards along the border. In this month's episode of Our Land, environmental correspondent Laura Pascas brings us to the border between Santa Teresa and Columbus, New Mexico, to learn about the wall's impact on wildlife and communities. Along the U.S.-Mexico border in southern New Mexico, there's not a river or landforms that divide the two countries. It's the same Chihuahuan desert, the same connected aquifers beneath soil and stone, the same creatures leaving their prints behind in the sand. We know there are a lot of species out here because we've set out wildlife cameras and, and we've captured videos and, and photos of them. The images collected by the Southwest Environmental Center include mountain lions, bobcats, javelinas, deer, coyotes, and foxes. Not only does this wall break up the visual landscape, for the animals that live in this vast Chihuahuan desert, it poses an existential threat. 
Wild animals need to move across the landscape to be able to get to the food and the water and the mates that they need to survive and for their kind to survive into the future. This is a classic case of habitat fragmentation. And biologists know that when you fragment habitat, you divide populations of wild animals into smaller populations. And the smaller the population of wild animals, the more likely it is to disappear. And when enough of those populations disappear, the species goes extinct. The desert here is quiet. But in the past two years, construction workers have been erecting 30-foot-tall steel bollards, costing more than $20 million a mile. In some places, the 30-foot wall replaces an 18-foot wall. In others, the border has been nothing but barbed wire fences and vehicle barriers. Kevin Bixby moved here 30 years ago. At that time, the border was a barbed wire fence to keep cattle from crossing the international boundary. There really was no wall here to speak of. Uh, what there was was uh, these vehicle barriers that are maybe four or five feet tall. Really no problem for wildlife to get through. When people say that this administration has not built any new wall, it's not correct. For centuries, people moved across this landscape too, to trade, travel, follow wildlife, migrate with the seasons to build lives on either side of a line, a line in the desert agreed upon by two countries. Angelica Rubio is a state lawmaker. She represents the city of Las Cruces. I was born and raised in the southeastern part of the state, and um, my parents are actually from the Marfa Presidio area. And so for us, the borderlands has always been a big part of who we are as, as my, not only my family, but also our community. And the same can be said about Las Cruces and the South Valley, where um, so many of the smaller communities leading into El Paso have been a part of generations-long uh, binational communities that have lived together for a very, very long time. But America began to militarize its southern border, even before the election of Donald Trump in 2016, when the U.S. started granting contracts each worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And the Trump administration began waiving environmental protection laws for the construction. When 45 was elected into office a couple years ago, people assumed that the wall was barely going to be built. But what people don't realize is that this part of the region has been heavily militarized for a very long time. Over the course of Clinton's administration, the Bush administration, and even under the Obama administration, we have seen barriers go up. There are checkpoints throughout southern New Mexico and border patrol agents in towns and cities. To Rubio, this makes people in southern New Mexico feel like they are always surrounded by walls. And myths have arisen around the border with Mexico. I feel that this narrative that this border is insecure and that this border is dangerous is really built on fear from those who are not from here. Pushing back against these divisive narratives about immigration and the landscape has brought some New Mexicans closer together. After the election in 2016, there was a lot of unlikely allies, um, many allies who had worked in silos for a very long time, who came together not only to address issues around human rights, but also to address issues around the protection of our public lands and our wildlife. And we all came together to really think through what was our strategy moving forward and how do we further protect this very diverse area from a wall that is very much going to be destructive to our land and to our wildlife. Even if immigration policies change in the coming years, the wall will still be a scar. It will still stand here in the desert, in the desert that looks just the same on either side of the border. Worldwide, we're facing this uh, global extinction crisis where we're losing populations and species of, of wildlife and we're losing intact ecosystems everywhere. And uh, as, as one scientist has said, we're we're busy sawing off the branch that we're sitting on. Uh, you know, our, our fate as a species really depends on maintaining the biological diversity of this world. And walls don't help anyone, Bixby says. I think it's important for people who don't live here to understand that 
first of all, there is no crisis. Secondly, the border wall causes harm to wildlife and the environment. And that's, this is, this is my home, and this is the home of people that live along the border, and it's the home of the wildlife that lives here. And the border wall is not good for any of us. For Our Land and New Mexico in Focus, I'm Laura Paskus. Are you one of those people who thinks that this should become a full-time job for those people who well, I, I who think it, it should. We're one of okay. the very last states, that, yeah. if not the last state. We're, we're one of them. Uh, yeah, I think uh, if you're going to ask people, get a, get a more diverse group in there, and, and probably younger, too. Stricter mandates approved last week by the Trump administration may mean up to 37,000 Mexicans will lose food aid. The change will curtail a state's ability to waive work requirements for some SNAP recipients, those are known as food stamps, as you might recall. The rule puts it a work or job training requirement on able-bodied adults between 18 and 49. According to a New Mexico in-depth article, a study done for a 2014 lawsuit, quote, found many of the people labeled able-bodied adults in New Mexico were veterans, experienced homelessness, or had mental or physical disabilities, end, end quote. Now, Janice, fundamental debate over how much mm. it's fair to ask someone to do, uh, quote, earn public assistance. I'd like to hear your, your, your take on this. I, 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 my sense is, for conservative folks, there's a, it's a, if you do this and you end this, that automatically means someone's gonna do this behavior over here. Is, is, that, what, is that the goal here? Is that what we're hoping for? You know, I, I, I don't think so. Okay. I think that, when I think what the government has taken the position of is if you are on food stamps, something is not working right in your life. Okay. And, and so do I see this as a taking weight? There are people who need help. We, everybody gets in this. Mm -hmm. part. But should you stay on it forever? And that's, if you ask the conservative position, the conservative position is if you're able-bodied, then yes, we should help out, but it should not be forever. Mm -hmm. It should go, you know, you should change. Um, what, what's your sense of how this new ruling works? It, it, it's I, and I think so there is, um, you know, and I, I read the part about, uh, it, it said you could be on, on uh, food assistance for three months right. in, within a three-year period. Um, does that mean that they're not going to transition elsewhere? Uh, so there are things to look at. So one of the parts that was brought up was that we have veterans who are on food stamps, mm -hmm. which is a horrific statement. Mm -hmm. um, but to say that a veteran should not be required to volunteer if they have PTSD, if you want to do the worst thing you can do to a veteran who has PTSD is let them sit at home alone by themselves. That, that, that is not a good solution. Mm -hmm. However, let us look at another way we look at any type of assistance. Mm -hmm. If you are in bad times in your life and you need that assistance, I think that we should get there. But we have created some very bright lines in other forms of assistance that when you start to do better, then we take away everything else right. and now you fall right back where you were. Right, right. And, and I think this is starting to approach, how do, how do we get out of that? Mm -hmm. But the bright lines for Medicaid are still there. Mm -hmm. Dan, the average is 121 bucks a month for, for uh, food assistance. And you don't get it all of that amount, by the That's way. That's right. That's a good you point don't. there. Yeah. Um, same, I guess same question. It, it, issue of fairness, issues of, you know, incentivizing people to do other things. What's your, what's your sense of how this really... Well, I mean, I think when you say incentivizing and issues mm -hmm. of fairness, I think there's a lot of able-bodied individuals in this state that are going to work every day that right. would love to get $127 a month right. in food assistance, but they don't because they go to work every day. And when you see someone who has the capability to go to work and mm -hmm. chooses not to go to work, that's where I think the fundamental dis disagreement ar arrives. Able-bodied, I, I don't understand, you know, you bring up the statistic about the veterans and they got PTSD. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether they're being diagnosed, not diagnosed, I mean, just, I think at some point there has to be an expectation in our society that, you know, the number of people that are relying on, on the people that are working can't just keep growing at an unbelievable rate and be sustainable. Mm -hmm. I think asking individuals to go to work or contribute, um, you know, is not an unrealistic expectation, especially when you're talking about people between the ages of 18 and 49 that are able-bodied. Um, you're talking about... Well, it's, not, it's not a and new expectation. Children. I mean, this, what, you're all, what you're describing is pretty much standard life. You know, it's not... Yes. Right. You know what I mean? But yeah. they don't have to do that under under now. The right. new administration has said we're expecting you to go out and become somewhat empl gainfully employed, work for something, do something. Right. If you're between age 18 and 49, and I believe it also says th these are mm -hmm. um, 
These these are people without families, by the way. Right. Mm -hmm. These are not, you know, I mean, before we go down the road that we're talking about some guy with four kids who's now we're taking, I mean, we're well, talking no about kids, 18, you know, yeah. we're talking about an 18 to 49 year old who possesses the ability to go do something and they're choosing not to do something. If right. they're, if they have a mental disability, if they have a physical disability, if they have some sort of a disability, I don't think we should be throwing them out to the streets and saying, forget about it. Mm -hmm. But we have to stop, we have to start filtering through and seeing that those who can try to help themselves need to be able to help themselves. Mm -hmm. Eric, the idea of rural New Mexico, this idea about finding work when you need it, right down the street, next county, whatever the case may be. I get the feeling this ruling was made under the idea that we have this hot economy going across the country. That there's all these jobs everywhere that everybody wants them in all these other cities. I travel, you know, we all travel. We see this happening a lot. Is that true in New Mexico? I mean, are, are the jobs plentiful and all this kind of thing for rural New Mexicans? Well, I don't even think it's, and definitely not in rural areas. I mean, if you, mm -hmm. if you know anybody, um, the idea that just, there's just walk up to any store and people are going to give you a job, I mean, that's a great, that's a great mythology. The, the reality is people who have any kind of mental health, uh, behavioral health, uh, physical disabilities, um, or just frankly would, would love to work, but there's no job for them, especially in small communities, but even in urban communities. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the idea, again, this is a gut check for us as Americans, the idea that we think the way to solve this rounding error, this is rounding error, this is less than the president's gonna spend on golfing trips in the next, in his, his administration, or, or flying his kids around the world. You know, for us to say that the poorest of the poor, because we don't think they're working hard enough, mm -hmm. um, should, be, should be taken away this, this 120 bucks a month, I mean, that's like, that's subsistence. We're basically saying as Americans mm -hmm. that to make sure there's no, uh, manipulation, fraud, or, or nobody's getting one over on us. And I'm sure there's some of that happening, I have no doubt. I happen to grow up, I grew up on food stamps. My mom worked two jobs. Mm -hmm. But guess what, I paid a lot of taxes because I was helped through that period. Now, if God forbid I wasn't an educated person mm -hmm. with a job, and I didn't have a lot of skills, and maybe I had some issues, I would like to think that my country and my fellow citizens would say, here's 120 bucks, just so you don't starve to death. Right. Maybe, you know what, go get a job. and. I would rather say um, to folks who maybe are gaming the system, you know, a few people gaming the system compared to all of the excess, mm -hmm. excesses of not just this president, but of a lot of people in Washington, the kind of money they make. This is absurd. As Americans, we should be embarrassed. And the final thing I'll say, just mm -hmm. Congress decided, voted against this. The president has decided, I don't really care what Congress says. Mm -hmm. I don't really believe in the Constitution. I'm going to do whatever I want. And he made a rule, and he told his people to make this rule. Mm -hmm. So it's just, a, you know, for those who, who revere the Constitution, this is, to me, is totally overreach of executive power. And basically, I don't even care what Congress says. I'm going to do whatever I want. Mm. You know, Serge, let's bring it local. The governor has made a statement. She's obviously very opposed to this. Mm -hmm. In a state like New Mexico, this rule will devastate families who can least afford it. This rule is designed to effectively deny people food benefits by instituting punitive work requirements that may be unattainable. Mm -hmm. Interesting. She kind of covered like three or four beats there in one, in, in one sense. Do you anticipate a scenario where there's going to be a more vigorous volunteer effort, uh, a, a bigger food bank effort statewide? Could you see something forming for folks who drop on, out and under this thing if they lose this money? I mean, I certainly think New Mexico needs to be prepared for what's mm -hmm. going to happen when, <coughs> when, when this money goes away. For the last 10 years, we've been under a waiver right. that this program will now say we can't do because of the problems that are specific to New, to New Mexico. We're saying mm -hmm. We are having actual issues that um, allow us to qualify for a waiver. Mm -hmm. So uh, understanding this is going to mean, you know, less money going into our grocery stores and whatnot and mm -hmm. the food industry in New Mexico, having a lot, having more people who are hungry mm -hmm. um, is something that we need to be prepared for. Creating mm -hmm. some of these training programs that will allow ah, someone. Let me stop you there. I okay. want to throw this out to the table too, the job creation thing. Go to Janice on this. Opportunity? Uh, you see what I mean? And now that we have this, it seems that the job training network footprint has to get deeper, wider, in order to allow more people to, to be able to qualify. Well, I, mm. I agree, but you're missing one piece Please. about the requirements. Volunteering, that, that satisfies the requirement. Could you volunteer at the food bank? Could you volunteer at St. Martin's? Mm -hmm. uh, the point is, is to not just sit there. Mm -hmm. and, and I think when you're looking at people who said, you know, I need help, we should say, we're here to help. Right. But don't be stuck in this because 
living on food stamps for the rest of your life should never be a goal. The goal should be to get you off of that. You can't live on. You can't yeah, live on 120. No, I know the you can. Goal can't. of living on food when stamps. We say, when we Nobody say, wants to live on. I, I know, but, you know, but the but point we, is to get out. And if it takes we, job training, when we, we should we say do that. things, when we say things at the table, which I think is, is being disingenuous. You know, it's, it's pittance here, it's pittance there. It's. I mean, just the 37,000 folks is 4.7 million dollars a month in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. It's over 56,000, 56 million dollars a year mm -hmm. in New Mexico. So. It's easy for us to, to take this and break it down. It's $127, just $127. No, it's millions, and yeah. it turns into tens of millions of dollars a year, and that's just the state of New you Mexico. You say it with disdain, like it should be scrapped. I mean, I, mean, I, I understand that it costs what it costs. But see, but see, Gene, I, don't, I, don't what, yeah. I don't know what you drank uh, in the least of Christmas holiday. <laughs> Coffee. But I say, what I say with disdain is I think it's a shame that we have that many people on assistance. Absolutely. All right. That we should be Absolutely. working to find it so that we don't need anybody on assistance. All right, so it's not about the money. So, uh, get back to my point about the job training. Right. It, Do you so see an opportunity? Here for more job, job training. training. I mean, you take you know, fifty-six million dollars a year and you pump that into local community colleges. Right. Well, there's great opportunities to, to enhance these op th th this jobs training. But you got to remember, Gene, and this is where you and I and you know I love you. This is where you and I argue all the time. I because, love when you say that because you, know, you <laughs> love me. <laughs> here it comes. Here it comes. Right. There's not anything that you can't spend money on to fix. That's right? true. That's so true. we can do all the job training in the world. <laughs> if there's not jobs for people to take after the job training, what do we do? But Janice perfect Boyd, ending note there. We gotta gotta move. Move on. <coughs> fault. I still love you too. Now we have one more topic to cover with this group. Up next, one on one with retiring Newsom newsman Steve Terrell. Love Steve. We talk about what's changed in the 40 years he's covered New Mexico. When I first heard it, I thought, oh my gosh, this is going down the condemnation route. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I read it, and it is not. Uh, this is something that the city of Albuquerque would normally use their city attorneys to go to a business to say, you have a responsibility to do certain things. Steve Terrell retired from the Santa Fe, New Mexico last month after four decades as a newspaper man. His departure from the Capitol Press Corps coincides with a distinct change in how the public consumes and values its news media. And MAF producer Matt Grubb sat down with Terrell this week to talk about what's changed in the years he's been covering the legislature and New Mexico politics. Well, Steve Terrell, thanks for agreeing to come in. It's uh, a little unfair of us to ask you for some instant history and instant perspective. You're about a couple weeks into retirement. That's right. Uh, I'm not used to it yet. but uh, uh, Sure. Sure. Well, as you put away your notepad, at least for now, um, is there something that you think has changed in New Mexico politics um, fundamentally since you started covering it? The only thing I can think of is uh, it's basically the same, uh, but uh, in, in elections, as far as politics go, uh, it was um, starting with Bill Richardson, there's a huge influx of money into campaigns. Uh, um, Remember when Gary Johnson ran against uh, Marty Chavez from, during Johnson's re-election bid? They both spent, I think, around $2 million apiece, something like that. I hope my figures aren't too far off, but uh, it was piddly. Then Richardson came in, and all of a sudden it was uh, he quadrupled that, I think, the first time he ran, and got even more the second time. Sure. So there's more emphasis on uh, money coming in, at least for the governor's race. And uh, so that, that's been a big change. Um, I think we're lucky in New Mexico as far as the legislature goes. Uh, while it may be seen to outsiders, may seem too palsy-walsy, but at least it's not like Congress and just at each other's throats every minute. Uh, people, Democrats and Republicans, actually get together at times, and, uh, and while they'll disagree on the major divisive issues of the day, uh, they, they can work together to come up with uh, compromises a lot, and, uh, and some good stuff's come out of it. So... Uh, that's uh, that's still healthy. Maybe it maybe it's getting a little more partisan and nationalized. Every redistricting year, you know, the national party send in their people to okay, you know, twist arms and uh, make sure things are going their way or trying to. But uh, other than that, uh, no, we, we still uh, have a fairly uh, congenial legislature. Sometimes congeniality is not the answer, but uh, uh, it's better than just you know constant combat. And you're feeling like it, it at least provides an avenue for progress and cooperation in right, some cases. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, is, is the way that um, the two parties communicate um, about politics, and really, you know, in New Mexico, we've, we've had some fairly active minor parties as well, but is political communication different, does it feel? Uh, there's far more inf uh, 
influence of uh, flax, uh, public information officers. Back in the old days, uh, I remember if I wanted to, you know, during the Johnson administration, if I wanted to talk to some cabinet official or somebody running an agency, I just call them up. Now they all have uh, PIOs who are, you know, uh, an extension of the governor's office. That, start, that started during Richardson, too. Sure. Uh, kind of consolidate that. So, and they want to keep their message clear. They want to keep, uh, you know, a consistent uh, message. Uh, but also, uh, sometimes you get more honest answers if you just talk to people directly. Sure, I would say almost all the time you oh, get more yeah. <laughs> when it's not run through a I filter. Have a, I have a lot of friends who are PIOs. I'm not trying to come dump on them, but uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, for reporters and for the public. I, I believe it's better just to be able to talk to uh, um, the person in charge or the person you need to talk to without having to go through all these layers of bureaucracy. Sometimes you'll hear um, from politicians complaints about "quote unquote" gotcha journalism. Um, does it feel like there's such a thing as, as gotcha journalism, or is it gotcha campaigning? Uh, there is a lot of gotcha campaigning. I, I don't think I've ever participated in gotcha journalism, and I don't think uh, I've known a lot of reporters, including yourself, and uh, that's not the M.O. for most of us. So uh, um, the, in campaigning, yeah, they'll, there's always, uh, when you're recovering a campaign, there's always the uh, people from... Uh, one side or another, trying to whisper in your ear, saying you should check this out. You know, sure. So, and I sometimes, you know, you do check it out because you, you don't want to overlook a potentially big story. But some of it's just uh, stuff, obviously, to embarrass the uh, opponent with uh, minor stuff. So, right, right. Um, we're a year into a new governor um, and and what is a very strong Democratic majority, not the strongest we've ever seen, but but a big one. Um, before we sort of talk about um, Michelle Lujan Grisham, we finished eight years of Susana Martinez. Um, are you able to put your finger on what might be the lasting impact of the Martinez administration? Uh, no, the, uh, it was a very contentious time, and, and as her, especially her second term went on uh, longer. It, uh, she became, I think, more isolated. But... Uh, you know, lasting impact, well, you know, you can argue that uh, if she held up funding her there, that'll have a lasting impact. But, but no, I, 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 I can't put my finger on it right now. I'm not sure what her legacy is going to be. Okay, okay. Um, certainly the behavioral health. Um, oh, yeah. It's yeah, gonna, was, yeah. They'll be spending a while rebuilding that system. It yeah, that, that, uh, that was definitely the low point of her administration. And, and it happened before a re-election. Uh, that was... Uh, uh, could have been more of an issue, but uh, her opponent was Gary King, who was uh, in charge of investigating it, so he really couldn't say that much publicly, and uh, so that, that kind of tied his hands, and it uh, helped Susanna win a big re-election. Sure, yeah, a huge re-election. We did, it seems like, as a state, um, maybe pay a little bit more attention to southeastern New Mexico and, and sort of the rise of southern New Mexico in, in political power in Santa Fe to some, to some extent. Yeah, although uh, the, both the House and the Senate are controlled by Santa Fe Santa Fe Democrats. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, Brian Egoff is Speaker, and Peter Wirth is uh, Senate uh, President Pro Tem. Yeah. Oh, no, no, I mean the Senate uh, Majority Leader. Right, right. Mary Kay Papen. I don't know already. That's right. <laughs> Mary Kay it's Papen, begun. who is from Southern New Mexico. Exactly, yeah. Um, the, you know, when we look at the oil patch, which has played such a huge role in sort of New Mexico climbing out of, of the economic rut that we were in. Um, feels like maybe we're paying more attention to um, housing needs down there, infrastructure needs down there, um, that there's sort of a realization that, hey, we maybe need to, um, you know, not just take from this part of the state. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably true. The oil thing is weird, though. It's, uh, it, that's always a boom and bust thing. Now people right. are predicting uh, that this, this boom could last for... Uh, many years and uh but uh, it's it won't last forever and uh uh we've we've both seen uh you know lean times caused by falling oil prices and uh, right so uh, that's uh i don't suspect that'll be a, i don't suspect those days are gone forever right <laughs> yeah um the in terms of the individual bodies um in the house um certainly there's a there's a progressive flavor to it um, right now, uh, there are also some 
some incoming upstart Republicans, well, not incoming, I guess, but folks like Jason Harper and Kelly Fajardo are sort of the, the vanguard, maybe, of some of those younger Republicans. Um, how is the House changing, or how has it changed? Well, of course, a few years ago, the Republicans um, had control of it for a couple of years for the first time, and was it 50 years? Or I forget uh, right. how many years, but... Uh, um, and that was the most contentious time uh, that I remember that first year, because uh, the Republicans kind of feeling their oats and the Democrats are feeling uh, left out and they fought that tooth and nail. They were more cooperative the, uh, the next year. But uh, yeah, the, the House is always more volatile, probably because they have a, they're elected every two years. Senate has four years, which isn't an eternity or anything, but it gives them more time to kind of settle in and uh, not just be thinking about the next election all the time. And there's more congeniality in the Senate, uh, certainly. Um, although, the, like I say, you know, compared to Congress, uh, even the, our state house is, uh, you know, everything is beautiful. But, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the Senate, those guys truly love each other, most of them. Yeah. Democrats, Republicans. I remember uh, Peter Worth was really sad when... Uh, who, uh, Clint Hardin, who was a Republican from Clovis, said he wasn't going to run for re-election. Uh, they liked and uh, uh, Vern Ashbill from Carlsbad. Uh, all these guys like each other, most of them. There had been a, a few uh, dissidents and hard cases here and there, but uh, uh, I'm sure you can both think of one. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot more congeniality, a lot more compromise. They tend to be moderate. Uh, when Bill Richardson was governor, uh, the biggest thorn in his side was not the Republicans. It was, uh, it was the Senate, which was run by Democrats. He and Tim Jennings, who was, um, I guess, Senate uh, majority, or no, he was, he was pro, pro tem. Yeah. He was pro tem at the time. He, uh, they fought like dogs and cats. Uh, so, uh, um, but, and, but, but they always, you know, they always watch out for each other, whether it's Democrat or Republican. Um, Back when uh, uh, Leonard Lee Rawson, he was a Republican senator from uh, Las Cruces, he was challenged by Steve Fishman, a Democrat. He's now on the PRC. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Tim Jennings basically, uh, I think he ran ads, uh, radio ads, uh, talking about how great uh, Lee Rawson was and how the attacks on him from his opponent uh, weren't fair. And he's talking about a member of his own party. Right. And, uh, Running the unfair ads, yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure how unfair they were, but, uh, but it, it made uh, Tim uh, react to those worse than uh, Rawson did. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you feel like some of that collegiality, um, both in the House and the Senate, is, is a result of the citizen legislature? And, and are you one of those people who thinks that this should become a full-time job for those people who well, I, I who think it, it should. We're one of okay. the very last states, that, yeah. if not the last state. We're... We're one of them. Uh, yeah, I think uh, if you're going to ask people, it'd get, a, it'd get a more diverse group in there and, and probably younger, too, because uh, um, most people in there are either lawyers or, or people who can get away from their jobs uh, for you know, two months at a time. And right. Go to all these committee meetings in the interim. Uh, yeah, and this would, I think, open it up for people to run, younger people. And, right. Uh, um, hopefully a more diversity. Uh, but uh, I don't know if it's going to change. Um, you know, every time they've uh, actually, was, I think it was Leonard Lee Rawson who was the last one to seriously propose a, a uh, salary for the legislature. Most of his own party didn't like it. <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, it, I thought it made sense. Sure, sure. Um, we just got about a minute left, but um, you've covered the PRC a lot in, in these last couple of years. Um, is this an agency you feel like New Mexico is ever going to get right? I don't know. You know, there's a uh, constitutional amendment uh, on next year's election to make it an appointed uh, body. And, um, you know, they're currently in, engaged in a turf war with the, uh, uh, with the legislature over the uh, uh, Energy Transition Act, who's got jurisdiction there. No political body likes giving up any power. Sure. And so... Uh, but will they get it? It's, it's, the PRC has changed. Back uh, just a few years ago when I first started covering it, um, the biggest rap against the PRC was they're too close to PNM. 
Well, now the, the pendulum has completely swung around, and they're, they're the ones really questioning PNM. And uh, it's coming at a time when PNM is, uh, you know, championing uh, renewable energy. Um, but, uh, yeah, so um, there has been some change. I, whether or not they get it right, I'm, I'm not sure we've gotten the whole government right. So <laughs> who knows? For sure. Well, Steve, we thank you for your time. And um, you're joining us for our year-end show, but we hope you'll come back for some others, too. Yeah, call me up. i got nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Thanks a lot. After hundreds of calls to police since the middle of last year and thousands of complaint calls to Albuquerque's 311 line, the city has slapped two convenience stores with 10-day notices. Albuquerque says the properties, which are in the process of a name change, but generally known as 7-Elevens, they are nuisances and public safety concerns. Now, within 10 days, the city wants to see a plan for security guards on property, cameras, and for the stores to quit selling those minis, those cheap single-serving bottles of hard liquor. Now, I'll be honest with you guys, I have a hard time with this one because at the heart of this is this question about how much responsibility businesses have for their customers, especially once they leave Janice the store. Uh, actually, I'm gonna start with Eric on this, uh, or the store or their property. That fundamental question of, of, of a 10-day deal here. What, what is the, you know, they're not, uh, is, is the camera in this armed security guard going to fix the problem? I guess that's my first fundamental question here. So he, he, here's mm -hmm. the problem with this. Mm -hmm. The fundamental business model for 7-Eleven is the more alcohol they sell, they lean on alcohol sales. So if your business is getting people intoxicated as quickly and cheaply as possible, guess what you're going to promote in that community? That's right. So when I was in local government and when I've dealt with this in my own community when we had to shut down a bar, the A&P bar, which is a oh, historic yeah. bar, yeah. because they were dealing drugs out of the drive through window, allegedly, so just so I don't get sued. Um, <laughs> so, um, They're gone. <laughs> the, the, the point is, I do think you bear responsibility. Okay. If the way you're making your profits are to sell cheap, by the way, the markup on that stuff is outright because it's, it's terrible stuff, right? And it's for people right. who clearly have a problem, people in bad situations, people who are unemployable, people who are addicted to other substances, people are trying to get out of the cold. Mm -hmm. um, so if that is your business model, then I do think you have a huge burden to, to basically act responsibly. And frankly, it, why not just stop that sale? Right. Sell some higher end stuff, lean more on food and other things that are actually good for the community, sell some hardware for some, but like to say like, we sell booze, we sell cheap booze, we sell, um, uh, we sell our clientele is basically people in desperate situations and we have no responsibility for all of the mayhem they're causing in these neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. I think it's not, I think, I, I think that's outrageous. I think they absolutely bear the responsibility to do the right thing. Janice? Well, I would say, I, I, I would argue that their business model is to make a ton of money off of, of uh, alcohol minis. Mm -hmm. That is not the issue. But Eric does make some good points. So if you have a business, mm -hmm. It is our law and our standard. He that doesn't make any good points, Janice. Come on now. Uh, well, I was trying to be generous. <laughs> well, <laughs> there I, you go. I'm just dealing with reality here. I don't know what you guys are dealing with. Um, but, but you do have responsibility. You have a responsibility <laughs> to make sure that the sidewalks are safe. Right. A number of things. And things have happened here. So in context, and so we're talking about some legislation that uh, mm -hmm. Councillor Pat Davis introduced. And when I first heard it, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is going down the condemnation route. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I read it, and it is not. Uh, this is something that the city of Albuquerque would normally use their city attorneys to go to a business and say, you have a responsibility to do certain things. Now, there is more to this story. For example, uh, in most 7-Elevens, uh, we have a lot of calls for theft, mm. but their employees are prohibited from actually intervening, right. uh, which is a real problem because that means more people are coming back. Sure. Um, you know, and, and can can 7-Eleven do anything about somebody getting mugged out beyond the gas pumps? Mm -hmm. You know, my first thought would be to say, well, no, but that's not true. Um, because many convenience, many stores, uh, many stores sure. have security systems, yeah. and, and apparently they don't. But I want to throw in one other piece. So these two 7-Elevens are in what we call blighted areas. They need a paint job, they need a paint job bad. Uh, but next to each one of these stores are vacant lots. But there is also no other food facility within a ha actually a mile radius right. at all. And it's the only one that is available after six o'clock at night. So if we push, and I'm not saying 7-Eleven is not without guilt here, mm -hmm. they're not. Mm -hmm. um, but what happens to our community if we lose them? 
So right now, what I understand is that they are going to meet, they are going to talk whether or not we get there. Mm -hmm. um, there is uh, injunctive relief, but we are not going down the road of condemnation, which okay. is something different. And I yeah. was really concerned about that. Yeah. So, and I, I like due process, but every business has a responsibility to a degree of safety mm -hmm. outside of the their premises. Mm -hmm. and, and, and just because they're in a bad area doesn't mean that you are not responsible for warding off yeah. loiterers who are just causing trouble. It's, it's the how, I think it's the hang up, exactly. Right. You know, Dan, the APD reports in the Knob Hill 7-Eleven uh, during a recent 16-month period, uh, a stabbing, 18 assaults, 41 incidents of shoplifting, grab and runs, as Janet mentioned, forgery, 246 other disturbances, uh, including fights, 119 fire and rescue medical-related calls, all in that same period. Clearly something has to be done. I mean, it's just not, you know, you think about those neighborhoods, it's just very unfair to them. But that line about how much a business is responsible, what's your take on that? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I would, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, there's, there's multiple sides to every issue, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, at some point you're paying taxes, you're expecting the police and the right. people to, to provide safety. Um, but then on the flip side, you don't want these guys coming on your property. You don't want the police coming on your property right. without, you know, the other thing is, is we're going to talk about the folks that work there. I mean, what do you want somebody to do that's making minimum wage standing behind a counter? Are you supposed to hop the counter and throw three right. guys off the property? Right. I mean, I've, I've, I've had to stop at these things at, and get gas, you know, in traveling. And I'm telling you right now, I'm not, I'm not engaging people that are out there. You've got some 19-year-old, and in some cases, you've got some 20-year-old single mom working hard, right. trying to work through school. She's supposed to go out and right. engage three drunk guys right. in the parking lot. I mean, the whole scenario just doesn't seem to play well. Yeah. Um, and, I don't, and I don't know what the answer is, because, I mean, it's not like you're going to pay someone $20 an hour. And I mean, I guess you could hire some bodybuilder that's a karate expert and have him go out and take care of it. Right. But the flip side is going to be we're going to hire armed security. So what's next? The police going to get called because the armed security guard shot three people? I mean, it just, it just seems like there's this never-ending scenario. Something has to be done because mm -hmm. not only is there an empty lot, but there's homes around there. Mm -hmm. And there's people that are trying to get up and go to work. There's people that are trying to take their kids to school. There's people that are trying to improve their quality of life. Mm -hmm. And they're falling victim to the actions of other people. I don't know. I mean, I would think at some point um, there's probably a reason why these stores are rebranding from 7-Elevens. I'm sure 7-Eleven has said we're out of the business right. in this neighborhood. Um, and so, you know, it, it, at some point, you know, people have got to stand up. They got to take their community back. The mm -hmm. police got to work together. And I do think the business bears some responsibility. Okay. If they want to profit off of the local community, they have a responsibility to provide a safe atmosphere. You, you, don't, you don't have, I know I'll let Serge go, but, but you, you don't have this problem at stores that don't based the bulk of their business on alcohol sales. That's right. the reality. So it, it may be tougher for them to survive, right. and, but if they just sell food, you're going to have some shoplifting. You're not going to have the kind of crime. You're not going to have this. We know it. We, the research all shows that because we've, we've, we've been through this for years. Mm -hmm. If you decide your principal business, and let's be, be honest, Janice, with all due respect, that's what they're doing. They're selling alcohol. Go to any one of these stores. It's easy. It's cheap. Yep. Just, just stand and watch what's being purchased. It's alcohol, yep. primarily, and you know, guys like me come in and buy some donuts every once in a while, and maybe. A I'm actually glad you mentioned that because I, what I was going to ask Serge is one of the most damning pieces of testimony I thought from Councillor Davis was when he said, you know, these stores have three to four hundred calls at these locations, and a fraction of the same calls at a convenience store a half mile away. Mm -hmm. That convenience store a half mile away is not selling booze. Exactly. It, right. And That's the difference. Data, I mean, right. We also have data where we've had Walgreens. We had this right. problem when I was in council. Took away alcohol sales, totally changed the, That's the right. neighborhood. That's right. That's mm -hmm. right. Right. They moved down to that. the 7-Eleven. <laughs> right. Yes. right. No, it's going to move around. I'm right. not saying yeah. it's not going to go right. somewhere else. That's right. But, but That's you, right. Have, you have to make a decision. Though. That's right. That's right. I mean, some of it is saying 7-Eleven is the the one store that's selling the alcohol, which I'm not well informed on that particular part. It's also, you know, the one place that's open. That's right. It's the one place that where folks can go. And that's right. Saying okay, 7-Eleven can no longer sell alcohol may move the problem to slightly different places or maybe mm -hmm. move some of the issues. A lot of these, you know, fire, ambulance, other calls are going to happen regardless. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of this is saying, we don't like the 7-Eleven because we don't like the kinds of people who are coming mm -hmm. to the 7-Eleven. Mm -hmm. And by, by doing all this stuff, we'll say they'll at least go somewhere else and be someone else's problem. That still is the city's problem. It's the still problem right. that we all have. That's and right. And public nuisance laws have a long history of being used 
basically saying, we don't like those kinds of people, so we're going to declare this to be a public nuisance. Mm -hmm. And simply saying, this is a population that we don't like, isn't going to make it go away. It's, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it will literally, but it won't make it disappear from our city. It won't right. make these problems lesser. It won't, you know, necessarily resolve this. And we've talked, mm -hmm. we've talked to nauseam at this table about, about 15 seconds our homeless problem in this mm -hmm. in this right. community. Right. Mm -hmm. Our problem, you know, the inordinate number of homeless folks that clearly have some sort of mental disability. Yeah. And you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these folks that are at the, these places are not there because they're just hanging out on a Friday night. A couple guys, like in the old Rocky songs, in the old Rocky movie, singing around the fire. Right. These are people that have serious problems, and if we if we think we're going to close down 7-Eleven and the problem's going to go away, mm -hmm. we have to address the problem. That's the last note. There, out of time with this group. We're back to take a whack at the news cycle next week. We had a great time with our behind the scenes Facebook Live session this week. In case you missed it, it was an Ask Me Anything segment with me and the show's producers. Now be sure to tune in or catch the archived versions on our New Mexico in Focus Facebook page. Thanks again for joining us and staying informed and engaged. See you again next week in Focus. Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and the Dnieper Natural History Programming Fund for KNME-TV and viewers like you.